Hello, and welcome to the Called Out Cafe podcast. I'm your host, Doug Hooley. I want to thank you so much for joining me. I know that there's thousands of other podcasts out there that you could be listening to, and I am just thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to this one. This is episode number 23 in our series titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. Last week, we started talking about the time of transition, the period of time between the earliest gatherings of the ecclesia, when it was primarily made up of Jews, and the time when it was transitioning into being made up more of the Gentiles, or the non-Jews. It was a time that those who personally knew and walked with Jesus were passing away, and those left who believed in him were trying to figure out what was going to happen next. Well, when they were still alive, the apostles of Jesus carried with them the authority to speak and act on behalf of Jesus. And with the passing of Jesus' apostles during the first century, the authority of the original apostles also passed away. There were other kinds of apostles. They didn't have the same authority as the apostles of Jesus. This type of apostle can be thought of as an ambassador or an emissary. For example, a cell of ecclesia in one area may have sent an apostle, which represented them, to a group of the called out, the ecclesia, elsewhere in order to provide them with support teaching or help them with selecting their own elders. Many look to the writings of Paul, such as 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, to support the idea of a formal responsibility or offices and levels of authority within the church, you know, like that of a prophet or a teacher or preacher and, you know, some say apostles, those kind of things. However, given the greater context of what Paul was writing about, it's more probable and plausible that Paul was simply recognizing some of the different common roles or functions found amongst the called out ones. This can be compared to a parent writing about their visit to a kindergarten class. Like uh, they would write, the kids were also busy finger painting, eating snacks, cutting out shapes, and playing tag. (laughs) Well, we don't say that there exists the positions of the finger painter, the snack eater, the shape cutter, or the tag player in kindergarten. Because roles and functions change according to what the teacher wants to accomplish, and to limit the roles in the classroom to these activities denies the kids advancing in knowledge beyond the kindergarten level. It stifles the future lesson plans of the teachers. Roles and functions in the ecclesia will also change as needs change and participants learn and mature. Historically, we don't even begin to see roles becoming formalized or institutionalized in the church until the end of the first century. This is decades after Jesus ascended. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, was teaching the ecclesia something. What was that? Well, Paul informally labeled the roles of people in the church to address larger issues, such as there are many different functions and jobs to take care of uh, among the, uh, the called out, 
and they're all important. Paul's lists that he uses in the different passages are always a little different, and they vary in the order. If he were here now, his lists in this time, 21st century, and this place, which most of you listening are in the uh, the United States, you know, the West, and this particular culture, which, oh man, do we have our problems or what? But anyway, <laughs> if he were here now in this time, place, and culture, his lists would probably be drastically different. His roles that he might list might include something like a social media manager or an Uber coordinator. <laughs> <clears throat> the main form of what we think of as leadership in the local gatherings of the ecclesia in the early days of the ecclesia was found in the elders, or what sometimes referred to as overseers, in some translations, bishops. But the New Testament does not dictate that elders are the official you know, be-all and end-all of church governance. If elders are the answer or solution, then let me ask you, what's the question? Who will lead the local gatherings of the called out? Since households were the core social unit in the ancient Mediterranean world, at least one modern author believes that the first default leaders of gatherings of the ecclesia were the heads of the households that the ecclesia met in. You know, like if you're coming over to my house and we're going to meet together in the name of Jesus, I would typically be the, uh, the default leader of that uh, group of that time that we had together. And if next week or two weeks or a month from now we went to your house, then you would be the default leader of our meeting. It, there wouldn't be like this appointed guy, typically. I'm speaking typically now. Jerusalem, where the apostles were first based out of, had a council of apostles and elders. This group continued to have some centralized authority over what fit into the envelope of Christianity, you know, this, what would fit into this bucket of Christians, uh, probably up until about the time that the Jewish wars began around A.D. 66, you know, their wars with the, uh, the Romans. There's nothing in history to suggest that there was ever such thing as an office or official title of elder found in the synagogues, you know, that came before the Christians. The first century pastors, you know, I'm putting that in air quotes, the pastors were simply caretakers of the ecclesia. Although a pastor was highly likely considered to also be an elder, being a pastor was to act in a role or to perform a set of functions. It did not mean that you held an office and it was definitely not a profession. Like that, those who preached, you know, prophets and teachers, and taught within a local ecclesia did also not hold an office. A preacher was not like an official. It was something that you did. Again, although they were likely elders, these preachers and teachers or prophets only performed a non-authoritative function. They only had authority as far as the Word of God was concerned and what uh, what they were hearing from God's Word. 
once they started having scripture or what they passed on from the apostles. The word bishop or overseer was only used as relating to performing tasks. It was not used as a term denoting a title or office or position of authority. Because of the simplicity of the early ecclesia, there were few decisions that needed to be made. No one was worried about whether the roof or the siding on the church needed to be replaced or who to hire as the youth pastor or whether to allow a non-believer to use the sanctuary to get married in. Elders were on guard for false doctrines that didn't line up with the gospel, the simple gospel message. They were watchful for those representing themselves as a part of the ecclesia, but were not. They provided loving advice for those who appeared to be straying from the truth. You know, if you needed advice, these are the guys that you would go to because, as Elder implies, they were mature, specifically mature in the faith. In times of persecution, they were looked to as, you know, the what-to-do guys in order to survive or make the best of the situation. Now, we got to remember that Jesus gave concise information to his disciples about where guidance and leadership within the ecclesia would come from once he departed this world. It was the parakletos. The parakletos is who we normally refer to as the Holy Spirit. He's the leader. <laughs> the passage in question is John chapter 14, verses 16 to 27. The Greek word translated as, or transliterated, trans, excuse me, transliterated as parakletos, and uh, I'm, I'm assuming you know what transliterated means. It means you got this word that in Greek sounds like parakletos, but it's written in Greek, which most of us don't understand the symbols for the letters. And so those that do understand those transliterate it into an English word. So anyway, uh, if you didn't know that, I, I kind of assume that most people do, but um, I probably shouldn't. Anyway, parakletos is translated into English as consoler or advocate or helper. It was translated in the King James Version of the Bible as advocate and comforter. The parakletos, the Holy Spirit, is another word for a function or manifestation of God's Holy Spirit relating to the ecclesia of Jesus. In other words, God's Holy Spirit was promised by Jesus to his followers to provide them and help comfort and act as their advocate or representative of Jesus in Jesus' physical absence from this earth. The words Jesus used in John 14 were not directed exclusively to the disciples. For example, when designating who the passage referred to, he used language like, if a man, or he that, those type of things, rather than saying, you guys, you disciples, my apostles. Jesus was, pro which means that it, it applies to those of us who are modern disciples of Jesus. Jesus was promising the paraclete to all of his elected followers in perpetuity. And to that I say, cool. <laughs> it was not the apostles that Jesus was commissioning to perpetually head the ecclesia. He was telling them that he 
will lead his people through his Holy Spirit. It was Jesus who led the early ecclesia, and it's Jesus who continues to lead the called out to this day through the advocacy of the Paracletos. How does that happen? Well, John explains in his gospel. First, and very important to understand, is that the guidance and comfort of the Paracletos is only available to and understood by the called out. Those who are not called out cannot receive. They can't know unless they're called to receive, and then they will receive. But so long as they are not called out, they, they won't know or understand the Paracletos. Next, now I'm not talking about, of course, um, the wooing of the Holy Spirit, which brings someone to belief in Jesus. Of course, they're going to understand that when the Holy Spirit wants to be understood in that way. But as far as guidance, uh, when we get together as the ecclesia, or acting as the ecclesia, either individually or corporately, they don't have that. The unbeliever does not have the Holy Spirit speaking to them. Generally, I can't put handcuffs on the Holy Spirit. He's going to do, Holy Spirit going to do what the Holy Spirit does, you know. Anyway, next, although the work of the Paracletos is truly supernatural, it typically does not manifest itself in a mystical or ecstatic way. Rather, the paraclete holds his classes <laughs> using knowledge of what Jesus said, our memory and contemplation. John 14, verses 26 to 27, is it 26? So it might just be 26, says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Now, I think uh, primarily Jesus was talking to his apostles as far as um, bringing to remembrance all things that I said to you. I think he still does that with bringing to mind scripture that the apostles wrote to us. But, you know, now we're like third hand. Uh, and I think that the same principle works with us. But primarily he was speaking to his apostles. You know, he's uh, as they were writing down these things in the Gospels. Uh, the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance the life of Jesus that they witnessed. Well, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind the things Jesus said and instruct the called out as to what various things mean in his word. Of course, the apostles of Jesus heard Jesus firsthand, but for the next couple of decades, the ecclesia relied on what Jesus said to be orally conveyed to them. Then, for about the last 1950 years, we've been blessed with having the written scripture containing the words of Jesus from the four dis different perspectives found in the Gospels. It's those words that are contained in scripture that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind and instruct the called out with today. Yes, the Holy Spirit can also use teachers, preachers, and prophets to convey His wisdom and guidance to us, but every called-out one is still personally accountable for what they accept as the true gospel of Jesus. Clearly, Scripture does not record Jesus saying this. 
This is from the book of First Fictitions 14, verse 16. Let not your heart be troubled. I'm leaving you with a perpetual line of apostles, starting with Peter, whom I called Satan, and who denied me three times, and who will appear to allow others to lead the ecclesia instead of himself, and they will succeed one another, committing many atrocities until I come again. Once again, First Fictitions, chapter 14, verse 16. So what happens when people who are not called out attempt to replicate the help, comfort, guidance, instruction, and advocacy on behalf of Jesus when the Holy Spirit is not actually present with them? Or when the called out try to force replication of the one-offs that the Holy Spirit accomplished in the past? Well, that's called religion. In the quest to replicate what the Holy Spirit intrinsically provides the true believer, poor, lousy imitations result. Instead of the Holy Spirit leading, churches appoint or employ humans to lead them. Instead of being guided by the memory of what Jesus said, they try to follow creeds and denominational doctrines and lists of rules. And instead of experiencing the peace Jesus said he was leaving with his followers, they comfort themselves with routine, familiar rituals, and music that makes them feel good. This is the stuff today that church committees, mission statements, and Jesus marketing strategies are made of. This is the same stuff that from early on contributed to the creation of the institutionalized church. Because of the, quote, reaffirmation of the role of the Spirit within the community, unquote, theologian Alan Culpepper, who I'm quoting, does not believe that any, quote, hierarchy or structure of authority, unquote, developed amongst the local called-out ones who were a part of the Apostle John's community. So the Johamine or Johamine community that was in Asia Minor, who was kind of looking to John for their leadership, uh, they did not have a hierarchy or structure of authority beyond the Apostle John, essentially, is what this Alan Culpepper guy is saying. And I agree with him. But John's first century community of followers likely had informal leaders besides the apostles that they respected and at least informally recognized. Those leaders probably fit the biblical definition of elder. Now, I don't believe that it's any coincidence that this guy named Polycarp, who is one of the Apostle John's disciples, when he was proposing a solution for staying on track with following Jesus, he did not, like some of his contemporaries did, suggest that people follow their bishop's suggestions carefully. Rather, Polycarp... Uh, Cool name, huh? (laughs) Polycarp suggested returning to the original teaching of the apostles. You know, again, rather than following what the new guys were saying, he said, go with what the original apostles were saying. My guess is, if you were to have asked those who followed the teachings of John, who leads their community of believers, I mean, this is John, right? They would not have answered John. Rather, they would have said, it's the Holy Spirit who leads us. That 
in my opinion, is the correct answer for anyone who fancies themselves as or is recognized as an elder today. Let's, let's talk about paying the clergy. Not to shift gears rapidly, but that's all I had to say about that. <laughs> well, I'm not saying it's wrong now, but paying any called out one, such as an elder, even if they regularly taught amongst them, it was unheard of during this early period. It was a completely foreign idea to pay anyone who taught or, quote, preached or was uh, any, any kind of leader within a church. With the normal size of the ecclesia not exceeding 30 people, it, again, back in the beginning, the needs within the group were not such that it required the full-time efforts of anyone. They were all expected to make a living apart from their elder responsibilities. Now, sharing with elders when they were in need, like sharing with anyone else in the local ecclesia, was a common practice. Any attempt to utilize scripture and what took place in the early ecclesia to defend pastors in local communities receiving a salary who can provide for themselves is an abuse of scripture. There is no evidence supporting or indicating that that ever happened. Again, hear what I say. These guys are able to make a living for themselves. They weren't like crippled or laid up or in the midst of famine or uh, sick or something like that. Christianity originally did not necessitate an associated vocation. It was based on believing in Jesus and loving one another while everyone went about their lives while awaiting Jesus' return. That's what being a Christ follower was all about. If you'll remember and you were listening back then as we went through Scripture, we talked about the compensation of pastors and preachers and such uh, as we got to the various scriptures which have been taken out of context and misused on that topic. And we will uh, be talking about it again in the future as we continue through church history because um, pastors started to be commonly paid. Uh, so we'll discuss that when we get to it. But for now, we're going to move on to talk about communion or the Eucharist during this period of time. There were many special traditional meals in the first century. The community in Qumran, you know, next to the Dead Sea, this ascetic group of men, uh, they got together twice a day for communal meals. Jews got together in their synagogues to share meals connected to events such as circumcisions and betrothals, weddings, and funerals. They also celebrated uh, new moons and, of course, the weekly Sabbaths with special meals. Meals took place within the cults of the Gentiles that closely resembled what came to be known as the Eucharist. Now, while the Jewish arm of the Ecclesia continued to celebrate the new meaning of the Passover Seder once a year, early on, at least after Paul had contact with the Ecclesia or the church in Corinth, an abbreviated ritualistic version of the Passover Seder had begun in the Gentile church. How and why that happened, we don't know for sure. Some argue that the Apostle Paul instituted the communion amongst the Gentiles, like purposefully. However, it's wrong to assume 
that regularly receiving the Eucharist more than as a part of the annual Passover celebration had been a regular or integral part of what it meant to be a Christian up to the point that we find the Gentile Corinthians practicing this new ritual in the mid-first century, a couple of decades after Jesus ascended. Nowhere are you going to find in the book of Acts that any such ritual is even mentioned. Why did the Corinthians latch on to the story of the Lord's Supper and not some other story? Why don't we all start a meal with water and end it with wine, for example, to commemorate Jesus' first miracle? Why do we not scourge each other with whips to remember that by Jesus' stripes we are healed? Why don't we wash each other's feet? And I know that some do. There's many stories in the New Testament, is my point, that are worthy of remembrance and celebration. It's not a magical ceremony, which you know some people believe that it is. They believe that it is a life-giving, literally life-giving ceremony. The ritual commemorating the Last Supper is not mandated by Paul. Certainly, it's not presented in such a way that one should conclude that it plays a part in one's eternal salvation. There's no indication in Scripture how often the church in Corinth took or partook of the Eucharist. Well, interestingly, the Gospel of John, the last Gospel to be written, does not record the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. By the time the Gospel of John was written, around somewhere between 75 and 97 AD, the Eucharist was being celebrated by many different communities in the Christian Gentile world. John, probably writing his Gospel while living in Ephesus, was aware of that practice. Yet, as he decided what were the most important things to emphasize in his Gospel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he chose not to include the Last Supper account. Isn't that odd for a religious sacrament that's been so heavily emphasized for centuries? John's community of believers, who likely fit into the Christian sect of Judaism, were probably amongst those that continued to celebrate the Eucharist only once a year during the Passover. Even then, the ritual fit into the regular Passover Seder, you know, the the larger meal experience. During the great debate of the second century regarding when to celebrate Easter, John's disciple Polycarp, already mentioned, he argued for celebrating it during the Passover. This was in keeping with Jewish, and according to Polycarp, the Apostle John's and other apostles that he personally knew, their traditions. Not only did the Eucharist get extracted from the Passover Seder, but by the end of the second century, the church extracted Easter from the Passover as well. In the end, what took place during the Passover meal between Jesus and his disciples was but one of many things that are included in what the disciples were instructed to pass on in their teaching. It just happens to be one that was taken out of context, had all Jewishness removed from it, became ritualized, and has stuck for centuries. But it's not the same as it was. Let's talk about sharing all things in common, something that you will typically hear 
when people are talking about how successful the early church was and how we can emulate it. Well, it's because they shared all things in common. Well, there is no record of people returning home to the, quote, every nation, unquote, that they had come from, from Jerusalem and then selling their properties support one another. It wasn't an ongoing practice. Monastic movements being the main and best known exception to that, Christians maintained their own households and their own businesses. There were Christians from all social and economic strata involved in the ecclesia. Beyond not leaving others in want when one had an abundance, there was no apparent attempt to equalize wealth. Rather than perpetually sharing all things in common, Christians were giving willingly out of their prosperity. As far as church outreach goes, Paul's advice to the ecclesia regarding those outside the ecclesia, non-believers, was not to invite them to church. <laughs> it was not to put on revival meetings, to preach on street corners, to enter church floats and parades, or sponsor secular school classrooms, or set up booths at the center of higher education and uh, accost kids as they're crossing <laughs> the campus green, or attend the Roman games with the non-Christians, and put on block parties, or start community gardens, or hand out tracts for the four spiritual laws. I hope you're getting my point here. We do a lot of different things in the name of evangelism today. Paul didn't encourage us to do so. Paul did not tell believers to become active in politics and overtly take stands on secular issues in the name of Jesus. I know I'm losing probably at least a few listeners now. There were no organized protests where abortions commonly took place and considered amoral. Never, ever do we ever have any indication of Paul repeatedly beating unbelievers over the head with the gospel attempting to convince them of something that they didn't want to believe in. Paul's recommendation for the everyday member of the ecclesia was to, quote, aspire to live quietly and to mind their own business, unquote. He told them to provide a living for themselves so that they may, quote, live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one, unquote. Paul's idea of outreach was to bless those who persecute you, live peacefully, without revenge, and do good to any outside the community of the called out that they met. Paul encouraged them to conduct themselves wisely when around unbelievers, and to speak with grace, seasoning their speech with salt so they may give answers in ways that are understood. Now, while Paul encouraged the ecclesia to engage in all of these behaviors. Nowhere do we see indications that these things were accomplished in any way other than on an individual basis, not corporately. Hey guys, let's get together and be salty today and let's go speak to the community with grace. This was advice to people on an individual basis. Paul's recommendations were put into action by individual believers as they came across individual non-believers. No corporate efforts on behalf of the ecclesia or campaigns to attract attention to their group 
or to take a stand on something. No efforts to market Jesus. The Holy Spirit was left to do the marketing. Are you still with me or have you shut me off? (laughs) Well, I need to tell you, I'm not on commission for saying these things. I'm not trying to get you to uh, do any of these things. I'm just telling you the way it was in the early church and what happened. Do with that what you will. I am definitely not saying those things are wrong, but I am saying that they are completely unbiblical and the early church did not engage in them. I want to talk about divisions and schisms now. Fun topic, huh? Lest we view this period that I'm talking about as the glorious church age in which believers were unified and acted as one, we need to remember that the New Testament indicates something drastically different. In fact, division is a key factor which has continued to lead the church in a different direction than the ecclesia. Christians have been dividing and buying into false teaching from the get-go. I'm not going to document or discuss them all, but I'm going to let you know about a couple examples here. When Paul wrote about a schism or division in the ecclesia, he was referring to local bodies of Christians, you know, division within the local bodies of Christians. Paul did not teach that there was anything on this earth other than local bodies of Christians. He didn't teach a universal church. That universal church exists in heaven that we all go to be building blocks in when we die, and Jesus will bring back with him to this earth when he returns. Anyway, so Paul taught that at the core of division in local communities of believers is selfishness, lack of agreement and lack of care and concern for others, essentially lack of love. You can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12 and uh, 1121 if you want to see what I'm talking about. You can read about Paul's advice for those causing division in Romans 16, verse 17, and Titus verses, let's see, Titus 3, verses 10 to 11. Essentially, those people were to be avoided. That's the, uh, that's the serum for division causers. Avoid them. No one articulated our human propensity to sin, even if a member of the ecclesia as well as the Apostle Paul did. Paul also articulated that a true believer has the desire not to sin. and They're going to continue to experience struggling while trying to keep sin at bay. Unrepentant sinners were not allowed to associate with the ecclesia, presumably because they lacked the desire to not sin and they were not interested in engaging in the anti-sin struggle, thus indicating that they were not a brother or sister in Jesus. I think that's some really important advice there that we don't typically see being followed today. The Apostle Paul documents, quote, Judaizers, unquote, that worked from inside the church. Paul also admonished the ecclesia in Corinth after he heard that they were dividing over which apostle to follow. He urged the ecclesia in Rome to turn away from those who taught contrary to what they had already learned about the gospel. There's a lot of avoidance 
techniques going on there that Paul recommended. The Apostle John records individuals that departed from his community of believers that he associated with the spirit of the Antichrist. And in the portion of the book of Revelation which Jesus dictated to John, Jesus points out or talks about groups associated with the ecclesias in Western Asia Minor, which are clearly not a part of them. He says things like, quote, those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, or those who hold to the teachings of Balaam, and those who have bought into the teaching of that woman Jezebel. He essentially had no tolerance for them. Separation, uh, departure from what they're saying and not taking part in what they're saying um, was the antidote. I just got to say that there is so much emphasis today in many, many churches placed on tolerance. Tolerance for different things that in the Bible could be considered depravity. And that is clearly not the message that we get from Jesus, especially in these uh, the seven mini letters in Revelation. Jesus was not tolerant of these different things that he considered to be sinful and contrary to what he uh, would have us do. Not So what I'm saying is Jesus was not real big on tolerance of those who might infiltrate the body of Christ. So when we see... In, I, maybe in order to get numbers in the church or whatever the motivation to, to appear to be loving like Jesus was loving, uh, this tolerance for uh, the sin uh, kind of seems to be in vogue, in vogue. Now, I'm not saying that we are to be intolerant of, of the people, you know, love the, the sinner, not the sin. I think uh, might sound cliche, but is very true. But tolerance of particular lifestyles that are all about continuing to engage in sin is clearly not okay with Jesus. Now, having said that, um, and completely believing that that's true, that does not pertain to those outside of the ecclesia. It pertains to those within the ecclesia that there should be no tolerance for that. Probably the quickest examples that I can think of of Jesus not being uh, tolerant in the way that I'm speaking of would be found in the many letters to the churches in Revelation. Let's look at chapter 2 here, uh, Pergamum, um, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. This is Jesus uh talking or dictating to the Apostle John. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, tolerate it. No. Therefore, repent. Why, Lord? If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, uh, the classic example would be, this is to the church in Thyatira, 
starts in verse 18 of chapter 2. Actually, this is verse 19. It says this, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Well, it sounds like they're doing okay, right? But, Jesus goes on, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve." There's an example of about how tolerant Jesus is. He gave her a little time to repent of her works. Um, he's not happy that the people in Thyatira are tolerating it at all. And there's a stiff penalty uh, involved for her lack of repentance. Anyway, th- that's a little bit about how Jesus uh, is tolerant within the uh, ecclesia. Again... Uh, it's up to him alone and his Holy Spirit to judge those outside of the ecclesia. So when I say that we should not be tolerant, I, uh, I mean that that's within the ecclesia. Um, and uh, we are not called to judge those on the outside. So that's about it for this week. But I want to sum up what we've talked about this week and last week. The period covered uh, in this episode and the last episode takes us from when people first received the gospel of Jesus through the passing of the apostles. It was a time of bigly transition. (laughs) When the apostles first came on the scene, there was no written doctrine. The firsthand stories of what had happened with Jesus had not yet even become widespread traditions. In the beginning, there was only people's raw, natural reaction to the story of Jesus, what he did and said, who he said he was, and what he said he'll do. By the time the apostles had all passed, this organic response to the gospel had begun to be replaced by a new, organized religion. When people left their old beliefs behind in favor of new ones, they didn't always leave their old belief systems behind. Nor did they leave their sinful natures behind. Because of geographic distance between the apostles and the new Christians, the sin and religious systems people brought with them and the ideas concerning God caused the need for written instruction in the form of the letters that were written, the epistles. The instruction found in the letters of the apostles in the New Testament, that's where they came from. These letters contained many specific instructions for specific situations in specific locations based on the principles, faith, hope, and love, taught by Jesus and the apostles. Whereas specific instruction may become obsolete because of the culture that we live in, the principles never become outdated. Not understanding this contributed to an increasingly complex new religious system called Christianity and the institution of the church. 
I just had a conversation uh, a couple days ago during a Bible study uh, with a guy who is uh, working with a, a Jewish lady um, who's having a tough time accepting what Christianity is about. And I made the point that perhaps if uh, this lady lived in the first century prior to the institution of the church and uh, the systemization of Christianity, that she likely would have had a much easier time accepting who Jesus was, which was the Jewish Messiah that they had looked forward to for centuries, rather than now trying to accept this Messiah when we try so hard to say that he has something to do with what modern Christianity and the modern institutional church has become drastically two different things. Anyway, I digress. The earliest organized local churches were based on patterns found in the early philosophical schools and like the guilds and the mystery cults and fraternities and synagogues. Although the true believers who are the ecclesia are sinners and imperfect, the earthly institutions have also, they've all been subject to outsider, non-elect, unbeliever influence. New Christians, whether authentic believers or not, carried on the religious patterns that they were accustomed to. Many of the ways that they worshipped, based on their old practices, were putting into writing and being handed down. They became traditions that can still largely be found today. In the physical absence of Jesus, the Parakletos, the Holy Spirit, is the only authorized true leader of the ecclesia on this earth. The apostles of Jesus were also authorized by him to speak on his behalf. However, Jesus did not say that he was establishing a successive line of apostles to follow him and provide perpetual leadership. That wasn't his system. He said that in his absence, he will send the Parakletos, his advocate, to lead. Humans not being satisfied with this, began formulating a hierarchical, authoritative leadership system. Divisions and schisms started as soon as people strayed from following the Holy Spirit alone. Despite the massive division in the church that resulted, the Holy Spirit has always led the ecclesia. I think the church is listening to somebody other than the Parakletos. The ecclesia is listening to the Holy Spirit. Although Paul wrote of various roles found within the ecclesia, we shouldn't make the mistake of looking at these roles as offices or titles. We should also not make the mistake of thinking that these roles should necessarily be found amongst the ecclesia today. The closest thing to human leadership that should exist within the ecclesia are elders. Wise, mature, at least this is the biblical model. Wise, mature in the faith, elderly individuals who could be trusted for their counsel. They were those who had demonstrated, and should still be those who have demonstrated, accurate knowledge and understanding of the precepts of following Jesus. Many traditions formed really early on, so that Paul found it necessary to address some of those issues. Communion, the Eucharist, was one such tradition. One tradition not found in the early church was placing any emphasis whatsoever on missions 
church outreach, or social justice issues. Uh, or, another one not found, is paying local church leaders. By the end of the book of Acts, when Paul was in Rome, the, quote, way, unquote, was what Christians were known as, and was still commonly known as a sect within Judaism that was spoken against everywhere. Nobody liked him. <laughs> None of the Jews liked him. As people sought to be assured of their salvation in the coming decades, emphasis placed on human-fostered Christian religious traditions, they exploded. Religious traditions were quick to take the many false teachings that, that came along with them by the hand. Religious traditions and false teachings, they make a perfect couple. Their relationship has continued to this day. Yet, while many wholeheartedly followed this insidious couple, this religious tradition and false teaching couple, the Parakletos, the Holy Spirit, continued to advocate amongst the few, the called out, the ecclesia. It's not any different today than it was back then. It doesn't have to be. So that's what I wanted to say today in this episode. And uh, next time, what are we going to be talking about? Oh, right. We're going to be talking about one of Satan's favorite methods of attacking the ecclesia, which is deception. But until then, may God richly bless you. Shalom and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram, at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Thank you.